0: Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. So yeah, we're continuing our series on John's Gospel, and we left last week in the midst of the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is a time when um, the Jews would come together in Jerusalem and celebrate the the remembrance of festival, but also of the time when God provided for them and protected them in their time in the wilderness. And across Jerusalem, there would be the buzz of a festival. You've probably been to a festival or an event. There's lots of anticipation, excitement. Everybody's there for the same reason. And amongst all of this, there is controversy going on. Jesus has been teaching in the temples, and he's causing quite a stir. So the Jewish leaders are getting quite upset. The crowds are a little bit confused. There's all sorts going on. And so last week we heard about Jesus saying some slightly mysterious things about himself, inviting people come to him um, who are thirsty. And it was just a bit odd. So who is this Jesus? What is his identity? There's a whole spectrum of responses and we're going to see some of those responses today. But as the final day of the Feast of Tabernacle comes to an end, to this excitement of a festival, there's an added tension brewing. And so we're going to start reading this passage today. And we're starting from John 7.40. It'll come up on the screen. It's a powerful passage we're going to be reading today. So let's try and approach it with open hearts, ready to be convicted, but also to be encouraged. Because we come before a God of grace and mercy today. So, John 7.40. On hearing his words, that's Jesus' words, when he's speaking about being Um, the water some of the people said surely this man is the prophet others said he is the christ still others asked how can the christ come from galilee does not the scripture say that the christ will come from david's family and from bethlehem the town where david lived thus the people were divided because of jesus some wanted to seize him but no one laid a hand on him finally the temple guards who had previously been sent out by the chief priests and Pharisees to arrest Jesus, they returned. They went back to the chief priests and and Pharisees and asked them, why didn't you bring him in? Well, no one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Then each went to his own home. So, as I've said, the name of Jesus, his teachings, his stories, his miracles are spreading. And as the crowds gather in the temple to hear Jesus and uh, they argue between themselves about what all this means, they're desperately working out who is he. Is he a prophet? Is he a Christ, the promised Messiah? We hear their confusion. They know something of what the scripture says about him and they see what Jesus is doing and they're wondering how the two can fit together. The Old Testament spoke of the Messiah coming who would be of the line of David and would be born in Bethlehem. And yet here was Jesus, a carpenter from Galilee. It didn't seem to make sense. I mean, we have the benefit of hindsight and we know that Jesus does indeed perfectly fulfill those prophecies. But this remains unclear to many people. Nevertheless, there are those who choose to believe and they recognise that no matter how much or how little they understand of what Jesus is saying, they can see that he is life-changing and they, t- they choose to believe in him. Conversely, others are pretty outraged. Jesus is not just causing a bit of a polite British kerfuffle. His words are igniting. They are powerful to such a degree that people are wanting to seize him. And earlier in the chapter, we read that the Pharisees and chief priests sent guards out to arrest him. Now, temple guards were actually Levites. They were from the priestly clan and they were religiously trained. And so, as they set out for Jesus, they obviously stopped for a little while to hear Jesus speak and wonder what on earth was all going on. And what they heard made them stop and think. They were clearly not convinced enough to commit to believing to jesus but they'd heard enough and were challenged enough to risk returning to their superiors having failed in their mission to arrest him and equally nicodemus is a man who was a pharisee himself we've come across earlier in the gospel he'd already met jesus and said who are you and trying to work him out but he clearly remains with with his feet in both camps When he speaks in this passage, he's not defending Jesus and saying he's believing in him, but he is saying, he's making a legal point. He's trying to bide him some time, maybe. At some stage, Nicodemus does choose to become a follower of Jesus, but he's still on that journey here. The authorities, that's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, respond to the crowd, to the temple guards and to Nicodemus with ridicule and contempt. They take the intellectual and spiritual high ground. They dismiss the crowds as an uneducated mob and the temple guards as Nicodemus as fools. And today the name of Jesus continues to cause all sorts of responses. Some people are open and receptive to him and some people are a bit cynical and hostile. And so the question continues to be asked of us, who do we think Jesus is? As the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles um, closes and the next day dawns, people once again reconvene at the temple. As is often the case with the festival, crowds can be slow to disperse. They may hang around before they go back to normal life, see if there's any last, bis- last minute bits of gossip and entertainment, soak up the atmosphere. And so they're back at the temple again the next day. And in the midst of the debates over the last few days, Something happens that morning. It goes beyond the words, beyond the arguments, and we begin to see something more of Jesus' heart. But before we read the next bit, if you've got your Bible in front of you, you may notice that the next passage is either in italics, it's in brackets, or it's a, com- it's a footnote at the bottom of the page. And there might be a note saying that this um, part was not in the earliest and most reliable part, earliest reliable manuscripts. And it's important we acknowledge this before we move on. In the earliest days, the church didn't have the Bible, as is obvious, and a few manuscripts were written of what Jesus was saying, what he was doing. And with time, these manuscripts were copied and copied and copied and copied. And so along the way, a few different changes um, came along. And we think that maybe this passage either got missed out and then was put in at a later date in a slightly odd place, or um, it was just in a completely different area. But there's lots of debates amongst the theologians. They think it doesn't really match John's style of writing, so they're not sure it was quite in this place. However, there is a kind of general consensus that it does reflect Jesus, it is very consistent with what we read of him in other places in the Bible. And, and it is there, it's been generally accepted. So we're going to read it this morning and um, we're going to accept it's God's word and see what it has to say to us. So we're going to move on to the next section. We we'll spend most of the morning speaking, uh, looking at that together. So if, you, if you've got your Bibles, this next bit is the first part of chapter eight. So at the end of chapter 7, they all went home to their own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him and sat down to teach him. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When we read this passage through, I wonder what your first reaction might be. Do you maybe have compassion for this poor woman who's being made a spectacle in front of the crowds? Maybe you feel angry towards her for her adultery. Maybe you feel a sense of conviction in your own relationships. Or perhaps a sense of intrigue and excitement. There's nothing like a sexual scandal to grab people's attention. And it's true today as well, sex sells. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law knew this. They purposely set a trap for Jesus and what could be better, more entertaining, and more contentious than adultery? except at the center of the story is a woman, not a perfect woman, one who made mistakes and made bad decisions, but a woman, nevertheless, who is known and loved. For me, as I read this story, I'm struck not only by her vulnerability, but also Jesus' challenging response to the religious leaders and his loving response to the woman. I'm acutely aware that there will be a variety of responses to this story this morning. And for some, this may be a very painful subject. For some, the subject of adultery could be very personal, either having been betrayed by another or maybe betraying one who you had promised to love wholeheartedly. Or it may be that you feel this passage has very little to say to you, either because you're in a loving relationship that's going strong or because you are single. Whatever our relationship status, we have all experienced the pain of betrayal, to be hurt by others' sin, or to to hurt others through our actions. We have all lied. We've all wanted what isn't ours. There's a whole number of things that we could say. We all do things that we know are not God's best for us. None of us are without sin. And so it's my prayer this morning that no one will leave here feeling judged. This is not to say we might not feel challenged, but I'm not here to speak judgment over us. The point for us all is is to look to Jesus and to his love. As Jesus teaches the authorities are getting to the point of desperation. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are offended and they're outraged by the claims Jesus is making about himself and they're threatened by Jesus' criticism of them and their interpretation of the law. They've had enough, want to get rid of him by whatever means possible. And so this is their plan. The teacher of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? My first reaction when I read this is, where is the man? Correct me if I'm wrong, but it takes two to tango. In Deuteronomy 22, we read that the law commands both the man and the woman to be put to death if they commit adultery. And yet here we just have the woman. And what's going on? Well, Jesus clearly explains this whole scenario is a ruse to trap Jesus. They are not necessarily seeking to uphold the law. They're twisting it for their own benefit in their pursuit of him. The authorities exploit a woman for their own gains. Their single-minded aim of self-preservation outweighs the dignity or compassion for others. They could have taken this woman to one side and challenged her privately, but they did not care about her. It's not about who she is or what she's done. She's merely an instrument, an easy target, a means to their end. By their actions, they humiliate her. They shame her and they hurt her. And this may be a bit of a side, but I think it's important for us to recognize the sad fact that across the world and even in our own country, women, girls and other men Vulnerable members of society continue to be exploited for others' gain. It can also be pain for us to acknowledge that there have been times in the history of the church where others have been exploited and used in less than loving ways to uphold religious expectations or traditions. And there may even be times in our own lives where we have used others harshly or unlovingly for our own gain. And these are not comfortable questions or issues to think about, but as Christians we are called to stand up and protect the vulnerable to speak up for those that can't speak for themselves and to love others as we would love ourselves. But if we go back to the passage and we look at this woman, who is she, what do we know of her? She probably looked a bit bedraggled and in a state of shock, but other than likely being engaged to be married or, and just being caught in adultery with another, we don't know anything more about her. She was, she's not appeared in the Gospels before, and I don't believe she, she appears again. She's just a normal average lady, no particular standing or status in society. But suddenly she's in the spotlight, having been torn from her bed, dragged through the streets and made to stand before a crowd of hostile men. She was extremely vulnerable. And I wonder if this woman wasn't feeling heavy weight of shame before this crowd. Shame of her sin, shame of her exposure. Her secret, which had been hidden away behind closed doors, covered by darkness, has suddenly been brought into the light. And here she was, alone, her lover, nowhere to be found, standing before Jesus. She was no doubt completely terrified. Her life was in jeopardy. They were threatening to stone her. Did she know who Jesus was, I wonder? Has she heard the whisperings of who he was, that he was a rabbi, a teacher? Did she know the debates or the controversy? What was she expecting to happen? If he was a rabbi, she would think, oh, he'll probably keep to the law and I should prepare to die. Or had she heard that this man taught love and forgiveness? So as she waited with bated breath to hear her judgment, what does Jesus do? He bends down and starts writing in the dust. Can you imagine the scene? There's the tension, the shouts of accusations being made by powerful men. Maybe some jeering from the crowds, or maybe they were silent in expectation. This lone woman standing in the center of the circle. The Pharisees are desperately waiting for Jesus to walk into their trap. Come on, disown the Old Testament law. We know you're going to forgive her, and we can arrest you and get rid of you. And the woman is waiting to be sentenced to death. And Jesus is doodling in the sand. Of course, there have been many theories as to what he was doing, what was he writing. But the truth is, we'll never know. Some scholars suggest he was writing out the relevant parts of the law. Others believe he was just biding time. and Still others suggest he was just merely showing them the contempt they they deserved. But whatever Jesus was doing, the authorities were not going to let it go They either could not or would not see what many during the festivals were already accepting, that Jesus was the saviour, long promised to Israel. Instead, they were on the road of getting rid of Jesus, and no amount of writing in the sand was going to stop them. So they kept questioning him, and he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. You can almost sense the shock of those words rippling through the crowd. Well, that was unexpected. Jesus is not going to be drawn into the argument, but very simply turns the judgment back onto the accusers. Jesus is not saying here that they need to be 100% innocent before any judgment is ever brought but causes the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to stop, to examine their own hearts, their own weaknesses and failings before throwing a stone in judgment of another. Jesus is reminding them that the law needs to be founded on grace. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law knew the scriptures inside out and professed their superior knowledge of God and their own righteousness. They ensured people lived according to the law and did so by adding on more and more rules like layers of an onion around the Old Testament law to lessen the risk of accidentally breaking one of the laws. And there's a kind of logic to this, but the problem with this approach is that they were guilty of being very legalistic in their judgment of others. Their understanding of the heart of God's law had not reached their own hearts. The law had always been intended to lead people, God's people, back to him, to love him. And not only that, but to love each other. In fiercely upkeeping the law and the standards, the authorities had forgotten that without a love for God and his children... The law can never be fulfilled. In Romans 13, Paul writes, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And in Matthew 23, we can read, Woe to you, teachers of the law of Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. When Jesus challenges the authorities to examine themselves, they, they recognize they are also guilty of breaking the law, for they're not showing the love, justice, mercy, or faithfulness required of them. It's very easy for all of us to judge others harshly, much harder to judge ourselves. It's easy to look at other people and think, well, I'm not as bad as them. There's always somebody else doing life a lot worse than you are. But... When we look at that and we feel better and more righteous and excuse ourselves, we're saying we're not sinners. In the case of adultery, immense pain can be caused to a number of people and its effects can be long lasting. But if we approach this story and excuse ourselves because we have not personally committed adultery or if we look at others and judge them without recognizing our own hearts and actions, we are undermining the seriousness of our own sin. Sin is basically anything that falls short of God's perfect will. God is perfect, and his will is that we walk in his perfect will. Anything less than this is sin. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans that all have fallen short of the glory of God. We have all fallen short. No one of us is perfect. I'm no better than anyone else. I may be standing up here speaking, but I'm not perfect. I have my failings. I speak harshly instead of out of love. I look to my own devices to fix a problem instead of God. And when I'm not the problem, but that other person is, and I know all the ways that they need to fix themselves to get themselves sorted, when I do that, instead of looking at my own heart and wondering and coming before God as to what's going on inside me, I sin. Sin causes harm and disruption. It destroys God's perfect will and plan for our lives and the lives of others in his creation. And it causes God pain. All of us have sinned in one way or another, In response to Jesus' challenge, the teachers of the law and Pharisees leave. No stones are thrown. They slope away into the crowd, leaving the woman before Jesus. And I think it's interesting to note that it's the oldest that leave first. And I wonder if there's something in this. Maybe an increasing awareness of our own failings the older we get. Or maybe it's just longer time for us to fail within it. I don't know. I look at my one-year-old son and he struggles as he learns to share and when things aren't going his own way, it's a tough lesson. And with time, I hope he will learn. But it's hard for us to sometimes recognize that our actions are not always the right way. Something that really stood out to me as I prepare today was that everyone left the scene. And so the woman didn't. She had the opportunity to leave if she wanted to. Her accusers had gone and Jesus was looking down, writing in the dust. Here was her window of opportunity. She could have run away. After all, no one was forcing her to stay anymore. And she still didn't know what Jesus would say to her in response to her sin. But she didn't, she stayed before Jesus. She stood there, her sin revealed. The betrayal lies and broken covenant laid bare. Her shame and embarrassment exposed. Her fear and vulnerability on display she stayed before Jesus and waited. When our sin has been kept hidden and then is brought into the light, when we are convicted of our sin, how we respond is a choice. Do we choose to retreat and hide away from Jesus or do we come before him, fully exposed in humility and wait? God is not forcing us to come before him, but he does pursue us because he loves us and he invites us to him. How will you respond this morning? I once met a wonderful pastor in South Africa called Pastor Bifile. And whenever he prayed, he always opened the prayer with the words, we come before your heavenly throne of grace. And it always stayed with me. I find those words so beautifully summed up how we come before God. He sits on a heavenly throne. He is holy and awesome and majestic. He is a sovereign creator The God who threw the stars into space and called them by name. And his heavenly grace, his heavenly throne is one of grace. We can come before him in confidence and wait because he loves us. Because through Jesus he provides a way for us and he shows us this grace. We see this as we read Jesus' response to the woman. He straightened up and asked, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus speaks to her for the first time in this whole scenario. Up until this point, she has been physically manoeuvred by others and set up as a spectacle and an instrument for others' deceit. And now Jesus looks at her and sees her. He calls her woman. For us, that's a slightly odd way to address someone. And if somebody called me woman, I'm not sure I'd respond very kindly. (laughs) But in this culture, this is a term of respect. And we see in other places, Jesus calls his mother woman. In doing so, Jesus is showing this woman the respect and the dignity that so far she's been denied. She's been overlooked, used, shamed and disgraced by others. But in this one simple word, Jesus sees her and begins to heal and redeem her. And he then declares he does not condemn her. Jesus is not excusing or belittling her adultery or any other sin. His next words are to sin no more. Forgiveness and tolerance are not the same thing. Forgiveness does not mean that sin does not matter. Sin does matter, but God chose to set it aside and provide a way forward. In Romans six we read, For the wages of sin is death. Sin matters and is serious. But Paul goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. On the cross, Jesus takes on our punishment and breaks the power of sin and death over us. Through his great love for us and the sacrifice of his son, God has shown us grace. Where we deserve punishment and death, God shows us grace and gives us life. As I said earlier, we do not know what happened to this woman after this encounter with Jesus. Did she believe and begin to follow him after an incredible life-changing moment where her life was literally saved? Did she return to her husband or fiance to seek forgiveness and reconciliation? Or did she return to her lover, relieved at her lucky escape, but the power of, God's, of Jesus' words not reaching her heart? How do we respond when we know God's forgiveness and grace in our lives? Do we keep sinning, knowing we, we will be forgiven anyway? Push the boundaries. In Romans 6, we read that Paul asks this exact question. What should we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we continue to live in it? Our response to this should not be, well, I'll just keep sinning. God will forgive me. Our response should be one of worship and love for God to live, to walk in the life and the freedom that he has given us through Christ Jesus. In this story, Jesus shows commitment to God's law, but also to the care and restoration of a broken woman before him. Forgiveness does not mean that sin doesn't matter, but we are called to pursue holiness in our lives, not out of a place of legalism and judgment, but out of worship in response to the grace and love that we have been shown. When I read this passage, the word that comes to me is love. Here we have a woman who sought love from someone other than the man she was committed to. We see the teachers of the law and the Pharisees whose actions are completely devoid of love. And then we see Jesus extend perfect love to this woman. Jesus sees this woman, knows her sin and chooses to show her perfect love. This morning, Jesus sees you, knows your sin and chooses to show you perfect love. John writes in chapter 15, greater love has no one than this to lay down his life for one's friends. The power of the cross is the ultimate expression of love. On the cross, the power of sin is broken. When we approach the heavenly throne of grace, as we are with our sin before us, Jesus takes our sin to the cross so that we can stand forgiven and free. And our response should be one of love and worship of our Heavenly Father. How will we respond to what we've heard this morning? Is there sin in our life that we're feeling convicted of? What do we choose to do? Do we choose to sit here and wait for Jesus and come before him and seek his forgiveness and restoration in our life or are we like the pharisees and the teachers of the lord that slope away are we guilty of misusing other people judging others harshly or maybe are we struggling in our own relationships for whatever reason how do we respond to jesus with those things Or are we maybe cheapening God's grace with repeated sin? Something that we just won't let go, counting on the fact that God will forgive us. Wherever we're at this morning, I just want to encourage each one of us maybe just to sit and just wait before Jesus. Sin is exposed. Jesus knows it all, but he loves you. Jesus sees you, he knows your sin, and chooses to show you perfect love. So as the band could come up, um, let's just use this time just to sit and wait. And also, as I said at the beginning, if there's anything that you want to have prayer for, or you want to talk through more, um, there's me, there's Ellie, there's other members of the leadership team here. Come and speak to us. We all carry pain. It might be pain from the past. It might be pain of things that are going on right now. I just encourage you to come to Jesus and let him heal you and redeem you, knowing that he sees you and loves you.